Jason. Nothing. Getting ready to see you Sunday. Yeah. Making the trip up. It'll be fun. First time in two years. Yeah. It's pretty crazy to think about. It's been way too long. At least we have the podcast to check in every week still. Yeah. And we see each other over video. So it's not, it's not impossible, but yeah, excited to get away for a little bit. But other than that, just baby watch. Little baby will be here in probably about a month oh wow that'll be soon yeah what's good with you oh let's see we got our appraisal back on the house this morning came in lower than we were hoping so not ideal but i don't know i don't really even know how it affects our loan exactly but they use that number for calculating stuff on the construction loan and whatnot so right just hoping that we have enough cash for our down payment that <laughs> that we can Makes get started on it. it but yeah Lumber still through the roof and there was every once in a while, like search for lumber prices. And it's, yeah, the news articles are all like, yeah, we don't expect it to come back down for a long time. So nope. it's really reassuring. Yeah. Perfect time to build a house. I know. <laughs> Somebody like hit our van, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so we took it to the shop and one shop we called was like, yeah, it'll be the end of June before we can even look at it. And We found somebody that could fit us in, but he was like, listen, it is impossible to get parts right now because the supply chain's just effed on every level. And I was like, yeah, I guess I didn't expect any different because you can't get anything else right now. So Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I went by the mini dealership the other day and they have six cars total. They have a bunch of used non-minis, but like actual Mini Coopers for sale at the mini dealership is like six. And I was like, what? So they were saying it's a combination of the pandemic started. So the dealerships weren't putting in as many orders. They didn't expect people to be driving and traveling as much, which makes sense. But then the chip shortages and everything else in the supply chain too. Six total. Crazy. My dad was telling me about that. My dad is everything automotive. That's his been his entire life. And he was telling me like, Yeah, Ford can't get chips for their F-150s. So what they did was had to redesign the chip and it lost like a mile per gallon because it's not as effective as like their original chip they had and stuff. And I was like, that's just just so fascinating. Wow. I saw they just announced that new electric one. The weirdest picture of that is they open, they have the picture of the hood open with like coolers in the front. I'm like, so (laughs) weird. Yeah, Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. I guess Andrew's not joining us either. <laughs> I don't know what yeah, happened to well, him. He moved and we lost him. Yeah, he's fallen off. You see him pop up on Twitter once in a while, but yeah. <laughs> once he gets settled, he'll probably be back. But until then, it might be a little flaky. But we are not alone today. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. This is CJ Avila. You work at Stripe. Do you want to introduce yourself and explain what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a developer advocate at Stripe. And that basically means that I just help people integrate Stripe. And the main two ways that I'm doing that right now is through creating content on our YouTube channel. And then also by working on Stripe samples, which is this several GitHub repositories that we have that show full end-to-end examples. I've been listening to the podcast for a while and 
happy to join. Also, that F-150 looks actually really interesting. Having a frunk where you can plug all kinds of stuff into. A frunk. Yeah. Frunk. The, fr- yep. the front trunk, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Imagine like buying a truck is really easy to carry stuff around. And then like you have these new trucks, you have just that much more space. It's just crazy. Yeah. Yes. I saw a tweet that was like, want to sell electric trucks in the South? Tell them they can fill the front with beer. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can make it air conditioned in the front trunk, the front, and then it's the perfect. I was reading uh, too that they're trying to like make it so that you can run like a whole work shop just directly from the truck. So you can plug in like welders and um, like wow. run like full table saws and like everything just directly from the power system, which is wow. sort of exciting if you're going to a remote work site and you don't have a generator or something. So I think maybe they're selling it as work, but let's think about how many people tailgate yeah. in F-150s. <laughs> That's, yeah. That's some pretty incredible stuff. You can imagine a day where you can drive your camper somewhere and just you don't have to hook it up to power, just hook it up to your truck and you have everything you need. That is sweet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But so um, CJ, how long have you been with Stripe? So I actually had my two year anniversary yesterday. So I've been Congrats. there. Two oh, wow. years. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. So I was hired as part of a push to sort of bolster the support team before this new regulation rolled out across Europe called secure customer authentication which if you work in payments, then you're like very familiar with this. But if you haven't seen this before, and a lot of folks in the US are unfamiliar, it's basically like when you enter credit card details in Europe, there's a chance that you'll get a modal or some sort of pop-up where your bank will require that you put in a second factor of authentication. So like a one-time password, or they'll have you log into your bank to sort of authenticate that payment. And so I joined Stripe to add folks to the support engineering team so that we could help make sure that this migration from the old world where you could just sort of create a charge and then it magically happened to this new world where we now have like this payment intent and this state that we have to walk through as we're collecting payment. And so, yes, that's like one of the reasons why I was able to join two years ago. That's a hell of a time to join Stripe. <laughs> I mean, I've always been a huge fan of Stripe, a big Stripe user. At the previous company, we used Stripe Connect. And yeah, obviously like a big fan of Stripe in general. And then when I joined and sat down, I was like, I totally understand how all these charges and sources work. Right. And then they were like, oh yep. yeah, no, that's, that's the old way. Now you've got to use a setup intent or a payment intent, which are the new mechanisms. And so yeah, in my last couple of years is, is helping teach and helping other developers integrate those new flows. I have no idea how we would have done that without Stripe. We're Stripe Connect platform, Podia, and I hadn't even... Like you said, like very familiar with tokens and charges. Stripe nailed that. And then it was like, oh, now there's a new workflow where you're going to go to the server and try and charge it, but we may have to authenticate it. So then you need to go back to the client and then we need to authenticate and then go back to the server and try and charge it again. And I was just like, yeah, this project took a couple of weeks. Two months later, I was like, well, that was fun. Yeah, it's tricky. Thankfully, over the last couple of years, things have started to smooth out a little bit. And so you can sort of create a payment intent on the server, pass a, its client secret to the client, and then confirm it on the client. There's actually like two different paths. Like the one that you suggest where there's like, uh, you create on the server, pass it to the client, pass it back to the server to confirm, and then handle any errors. But the newer flow is create on the server first, and then confirm on the client. That's cool. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket because that sounds wonderful. The other thing that's nice about it too is that 
beyond card payments, it really unlocks a lot of other payment method types. So around the world, like credit cards are not the most popular way to pay online in many countries. You might be using Shiro Pay or Ideal or SEPA Debit or AUBEX Debit in Australia or FPX. There's like tons and tons of payment method types that as people in the States, we like don't even realize. And because of the way the payment intent API was built, it has a lot of flexibility so that we can confirm and handle a lot of these payment method types with the same objects, like the same underlying flows. So it's an exciting thing that we were sort of forced to migrate to that new pattern because now it really unlocks like a potential for you to have like much more global reach, which is pretty cool. I mean, even being able to pay with a bank account or whatever is not like something instant like your credit card. And that now is all encompassed for us, which is nice. It just feels, yeah, all the stuff you've done for the last few years, integrating Stripe, is throw that out the window and relearn <laughs> it. And I remember reading your like samples and stuff on GitHub, trying to figure out how do I need to do this workflow and everything. And that was like, it was very helpful to have those because they were just like, oh, here's a Sinatra app or whatever that has all of the endpoints and you set up your code here. So you can really easily move that to Rails or whatever. And that was useful. So I know you know Ruby a bit. Do you end up doing like every language and like every front-end framework and stuff too? That's actually one of the things that I love the most about this job is that I do try to build the samples in every officially supported backend language that we have. So we support Ruby, Python, PHP, Node, Go, Java, and .NET. And so being able to write servers, like these micro framework servers in all those different languages is cool. And then on the front end, we officially support HTML and JavaScript. And then React, we have a React Stripe.js, which is a React wrapper around our elements. We also have iOS and Android clients. And we just released React Native as another client. And so, yeah, definitely one of the fun things is like learning all the different frameworks and trying to figure out, like, okay, how does this actually work in C Sharp? Or how does this work in iOS? To be candid, like I've never actually gotten an Android app to run. <laughs> I like I've tried super hard, but I've yeah, never actually been able to get it up and running, even in like test mode or development mode. I've just fought it so hard. But yeah, dabbled a little bit in iOS and React Native and all the front ends. But with the one caveat that everything we're doing is pretty simple stuff, right? So like we're just using the micro frameworks that we're creating the endpoint is fairly basic. And then the API calls we're really familiar with. As we're helping people integrate, we just bump into, oh, they want an example in Java or they want an example in Node. So we see the API calls every day. So it's just, if you ask me to build like a full-fledged app in Java Spring or something, there's no way I could do that. But I could definitely spin off like a little uh, sample app. But I'm curious too, like your experience with those samples, taking it from Sinatra and moving it into Rails, would you have preferred seeing like a full sample in Rails or was like having it in Sinatra sort of good enough coming from the Ruby world? Yeah. There's nothing really web framework specific there. So seeing the Sinatra version was actually a little bit easier to wrap my head around because it was like get and this route and then the code to process it all together. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Rails, I think it would have been more confusing having like your routes and then those don't necessarily, unless you're writing the get and the actual URL, you might throw resources in there, which doesn't immediately show you exactly what you need. So I think the Sinatra stuff is probably the better option there just for clarity. And it's not that hard for someone to transfer that to Rails or Hanami or something like that. So I would say that's probably 
a good thing that it's in Flask or Sinatra or something simple. Okay, perfect, perfect. I did see someone built an implementation in Rails, but it was like a one file Rails app. I don't know if you've seen this. It was oh, yeah. like in like Racks or you or something. It had all the routes, the controller, like everything was defined like in one giant file. I was like, that is an interesting way to show yeah. a sample. Yeah, I think they like, I've seen those in pull requests and stuff or like issues or whatever before. Like, here's a teeny tiny Rails app just to replicate it. Those are fascinating because you don't need all these the application RB and all that. You can use the defaults that are all set there and let it go and just require Rails, boot it up and then add stuff to it. That's pretty neat. And aside from those little examples, I don't know how practical it is, but yeah. it, it can be super handy for if you did want a real Rails example, one file. There you go. That's pretty cool. It's Definitely fun to build too in like all those different languages. I think I saw that you released a, an iOS app too for Jumpstart. I was curious like how much Swift code you had to write or were you using Swift UI or as a Rails developer, was this also like your first sort of app like spinning up on that or what was that? Yeah. Like? So actually I didn't write much of the iOS side of things on that. My friend Joe Maslotti did. And I think we used Swift UI. It's based on the Turbo iOS template that Basecamp released, which if anybody's not familiar, it's native Swift code that loads a web view. And in our case, we added a tab bar. So it actually loads multiple web views. And then, yeah, when we intercept those requests, then we like do a Swift UI view for the login screen or whatever. And then one of the things we haven't gotten to yet is doing payments. And payments are just in general trickier on mobile anyways, because Google and Apple want to get involved. And mm -hmm. I saw something about the, it was like private Twitter spaces or something that's mm -hmm. coming out and you can create little paid spaces on Twitter. But it was like Twitter took like 20 cents, but then Google and Apple were taking like $1.50 out of it, mm -hmm. out of the $5 that it would cost. And it was like pretty funny, like the just the app store kind of fees are pretty high. Yeah. But yeah, I think right now all our payments code is Ruby on the back end and then StimulusJS and just the regular JavaScript from Stripe on the front end. And because our code will all be in native Swift, we'll probably use the iOS SDK and then eventually the Android one. And hopefully we'll get that all working too. But yeah, those are going to be, I guess, using the native Stripe SDKs, but one of the things that I wasn't even sure of was do we create like the payment intent still on the server and then pass them over to the client and all that? We have an authentication API that works a little different than you would expect, where the phone logs in through the API, but the API gives you a token back and cookies. So we hmm. take the cookies and we put them in the web view. So you're logged in in the oh, web view. Interesting. Okay. And then we store the the token so the app is logged in as well. So if it needs to make a request to register for push notifications, for example, it can do that, but you're also still signed in the web view. And when you log out, we do the same thing. We delete the cookies out of the web view and then get rid of the API token. So it's a little strange. We haven't gotten to the the payment stuff yet. But that's one that I'm going to be pretty curious about. Like, how do we approach that mm -hmm. for iOS versus the web. Yeah. So I think it works as you expect, where like you would create the payment intent on the server and then again pass the client secret up to the client. And then you can confirm on the client. There's a couple like interesting best practices when working on mobile that could bite, <laughs> can bite you. Like one is having your publishable key 
usually like when we're on web, it doesn't really matter. We just hard code it and people are re-requesting the web page like all the time. And so actually if it's loading a web view and the web view is being served from Rails, that might be fine because you can just change the publishable key in Rails and then serve it up. But if often when you're writing a native app, if you hard code the publishable key and then for some reason you need to roll that key, then like everyone who's on old versions of your app need to download the new version in order to get the new publishable key. So like also serving the publishable key from the server is good. There's a couple new tools in native. So there's the new payment sheet UI, which is available on like Stripe iOS and Stripe Android, where it's like a pre-built payment sheet that gives you the ability to confirm that payment intent either with card or with other payment method types. So I think ideals might be supported out of the gate. That will automatically add support for new features as time goes on. So that's a really interesting way to start accepting payments on mobile. Yeah, tons of really exciting stuff happening at Stripe like in the next couple of months. Yeah. So. yeah. Going back to the publishable key, you'll find this interesting. Because we load the Rails app in the web view, mm-hmm. we actually talk back and forth quite a bit with the Turbo Bridge, as it's called. But it's just, it's just like building a Chrome extension that you do a post message back and forth and stuff. So I think it's very possible we will just end up doing something where like the publishable key will be in a meta tag or something. And then we'll just grab that out of the web view whenever the turbo loads that page or something. And then we can just Mm -hmm. keep track of it in the iOS app. Because the goal there with all this is just if Rails can be the point of truth and then we can override certain things like Mm -hmm. the payments checkout screen or whatever, then yeah, we could probably just leave that alone or design it as is so it's easy to retrieve in Swift from the web view and then... And so on. Because we can inject JavaScript to run. And then the JavaScript can also go the other direction and send a message to the iOS app. So like for registering for push notifications, when you're logged in, the JavaScript will fire an event that the iOS app detects and then says, okay, we'll ask for permissions or whatever. So we could do something like that. Just send over, hey, here's the publishable key from Stripe. Just keep that if you ever need it. And do something simple like that. So it's a different approach. It is. Yeah, I like that. It brings up so many questions about the App Store approval process. You have, because if you're able to just change the app by changing what's in Rails, like that sounds really convenient. But then also, I'm curious, like if that Turbo Bridge that it's maybe that was the thing that Hay released or the Basecamp released from Hay, like does that support like all of the things that the phone can do? Well, so it's just like sending a message, like a string from. Basically like a hash that you send back and forth across from the web view to iOS. And that's one of the things, the approval process that I'll be really curious to see how it goes. In general, a lot of it is not like that changeable. You've got to go release a new iOS app if you change any of the native code. And so it's not, hey, for example, is you're jumping or Basecamp's app too. You're jumping between these screens and like just browsing a website for the most part. So it's not like we're going to be changing like the whole payment flow or anything like that without releasing a new app. But yeah, in general, it's like a pretty minimal way of talking to and from the app. We had set up a little thing that like you have some default tabs and then the Rails app will also check the Rails app and say, hey, what do you want the tabs to be? And then we can say the we'll have a home tab and a search and an account tab 
with these icons and then a fallback, which may be just home or something built in if the website was down for some reason or whatever. And really it's minimal, like those flexible changes, but yeah, it's new territory for me. And a lot of little things are like different to just, you built the navigation for mobile responsive and mm. you want to have the nav bar with a hamburger button, but mm. on the iOS app, you actually want that to be native. Mm-hmm. So we have a hamburger button in native that says, when you click this, run some JavaScript to toggle the menu. And that will do that. And we just have the like nav bar hidden mm-hmm. on the turbo iOS version, but on mobile responsive, it's visible. So it's interesting. Like you end up doing similar stuff, but it's also different compared to mobile responsive and the turbo native stuff. But nice. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I am excited to play with it. I know there's a lot of stuff happening like Turbo, Hotwire, Stimulus area that I haven't played too much with. And then, yeah, the mobile piece sounds really interesting. So Yeah, it's, it's definitely like really efficient. If you don't know much Swift, you can get a long ways without having to learn too much because you can just drop in like tabs and say, here, we'll kind of relegate this stuff to these tabs. But it does take some rethinking of how you want to design the app to work so that it'll look nice on there and you don't end up going from one tab and then you can end up in the view of another tab from just your regular navigation. Uh For example, like if you click your account on the home screen, then you can click account in the tab as well and be on the account in two Mm -hmm. pages on accident or whatever. So it can be a little strange to get into, but yeah. So we'll see. But I think one of the big things is just get Stripe payments in there. And I think that would be super cool to be able to do the full native experience on there. And yeah, it'll be interesting to learn the differences on that because I've really only ever spent time on the the web JavaScript side of things and the API and all that. So it'll be a, a very different look at Stripe for once. Yeah, I'm interested to hear your experience. It sounds like, yeah, that'd be good. Especially since it's part of Jumpstart. I think it'll a lot of developers are able to just skip a huge amount of work that you're putting in. So yeah, I think really appreciate all of that. (laughs) Thank you. So that people can skip over that. I've worked on several applications at this point, and I've noticed that regardless of the business or application, there are a few support requests that you will inevitably see at one point or other. Is the site down? I was supposed to get that email and I, it never came. And inevitably something doing with the cache. And with Honey Badger, you can answer all of these questions and more. You don't need a fleet of different monitoring tools for just your cron or your front end and your back end. Get all the answers to whether that scheduled task for that email ran without an error, the site speed and whether there's a problem, which users are being affected if there is a problem, and what specific error is causing that issue. Set up in minutes or click the one button on Heroku. It's that easy. I literally did it right before this recording. Give Honey Badger a try. Let them know Remote Ruby sent you. Be like Honey Badger with no cares because you know they have your back 24-7. Yeah, there's just a lot of little things. Like one of the... well, And I'll be curious too. The confirmation on the iOS SDK, we won't really have to listen for webhooks and stuff the same way with that. That can be automatically done there. Is that right? When you confirm on either the web or mobile, the same webhooks will be delivered to whatever your webhook endpoint is. So you can automate fulfillment the same way. And once you've successfully confirmed, certain payments will have a status that is immediately succeeded. And so you can display like a success message directly on the client. 
other payment method types sometimes take like days to like actually settle and confirm. And so in those cases, you can just say, yeah, payment is processing. And then two days later, when the money actually makes it to the account, you can send an email that says, okay, yes, your funds are now settled. <laughs> and now you have access to your, I don't know, job storefront or something, right? Yeah. It's funny to think that some payments still take several days to settle. That's uh, crazy. I think everything is always getting a little faster. I think we're accustomed to credit cards, which are almost instant all the time. And so that feels good to us. But I think a lot of folks are accustomed to other things. I'm actually working on a demo right now with a payment method type called OXO. This is really interesting if you haven't seen this before. So it's a voucher-based payment method type. And it turns out that OXO is actually like a Mexican chain of convenience stores. So you can think like 7-Eleven or something like a corner store. And the way that the payment method works is you can go online and buy something. Let's say you're going to buy a t-shirt. You can buy a t-shirt. And you get a voucher for your payment. And that has like a reference number and a barcode. And you print this out and you bring it down to the corner store. You bring it down to the OXO store and you pay cash at the store and they scan it. And that's how you like finish your payment for this thing that you just bought online. And then the next day, the merchant will get the funds and they'll get a notification that payment was settled. This OXO actually accounts for like around 20% of online transactions in Mexico. And they have like thousands wow. of stores all across Latin America. So this is just like another example, like a small example of uh, payment method types that are, are really interesting, especially when, uh, when we're totally used to cards. So you mentioned earlier, like we're used to credit cards and then you listed off a bunch of different types. And like I've heard of ideal pay, mm-hmm. but OXO is an interesting example. But what are some of these other ones? If they're not credit card based, and I guess if they're not voucher based, how do they work? Yeah, so... There are families of payment method types. So they fall into... We, we sort of categorize them into different families. And there's cards, there's wallets. So we would consider like Apple Pay and Google Pay each payment method types, which are like wallet payment methods that really under the hood, those are cards. And then we have like bank debit, bank credit transfer, and then pre-authorized debit. We have vouchers. And there's also bank redirects where like you start to pay for something and then you're redirected to the bank's site and then you fill in your details and say, yes, I agree to this and you come back. We added support recently for a payment method type called Afterpay. It's also known as ClearPay in some places. And that is where you like buy now, pay later. So you say, I want to buy this couch and you pay with Afterpay and then like you actually pay in installments over some period. I think that might be all of them. <laughs> but yeah, there's, I think there's six or seven different families of payment method types. So that's crazy because each one of those is all going to be a different flow. Redirecting to the bank is a mm-hmm. really big difference between some of these other ones. And I feel like you've probably done the best job you possibly can to like abstract that stuff away from us so we don't have to deal with it. Because I mean, something like the installments you would normally think you'd have to build that yourself. If you support that in Stripe, then you can have that. And then I'm assuming that those edge cases of somebody who pays twice and doesn't fulfill the whole thing, you automatically deal with that situation of whatever happens there. So I don't actually know all the details under the hood of like, yeah, what happens if they didn't end up paying all of the different installments or whatever. But yeah, we've tried really hard to make the API in the JavaScript clients and in the mobile clients, really similar so that no matter what payment method type you're doing, you just create a payment intent on the server, pass it to the client, and then you call confirm like card payment or confirm OXO payment or confirm seven debit payment on the client, and then pass in either the element or whatever other details we needed. 
And then if it's a bank redirect, like Stripe.js will just know to redirect to the bank's page and then we'll know how to redirect back. If it's a modal-based thing, it'll open a modal on the page. So a lot of that is built into Stripe.js and abstracted over for you. Also worth mentioning too that like Stripe Checkout, which is like the Stripe-hosted version of the payment flow for accepting both one-time and recurring payments, has support for like most of these payment method types. And so whether you're creating the checkout session for a one-time payment or subscription payment, you can pass in a list of payment method types. And then we'll dynamically show which payment method type we think is most relevant to the customer. So if they're in a country where we think they're going to use ShiroPay, we'll show like card, then ShiroPay, then the next most likely. Whereas, so that's, I don't know, that's like a pretty sweet feature where you just like automatically get like conversion optimization benefits. I love that. And I know this comes up all the time, I'm sure, is like PayPal support. The reason most people are building PayPal integration is just for some global acceptance of payments where they don't have cards and you still want to have them as your customer. But I think this does an even better job of solving that problem because it's look, would they rather use PayPal or the thing they're actually doing every day on all the other sites Mm. that they buy from? They're going to want to use that because they're more comfortable with that. And that solves that problem really well because it's just way more intuitive for the customer. And you don't have to worry about all the the fun stories of being a business owner with PayPal, like seizing your money and not giving it back and whatever. There's situations that happen. But that was probably my favorite thing that I was like, I need to start supporting that because right now I think my integration is just cards. Hmm. And that would improve the checkout flow immensely. Do you have to go like add that to your Stripe elements and set them up individually if you're not using Stripe checkout? Because checkout is probably the easiest way to do everything now. And the billing portal and everything is... I just wish I had this like a couple of years ago when I was starting Jumpstart because I probably just would have used that for everything. But for my integration right now, just does cards. Mm-hmm. Do we set up elements for the other ones ourselves like manually in there? So we have some exciting news coming soon about elements. Nothing to share today. But yes, that is how you do it today is you go in and you create each element that you want to support for payment method types. But to be honest, if every time that I interact with a user, I always start with Stripe Checkout and try to see like why Stripe Checkout won't work because the number of use cases for building your own custom flow or your own custom payment flow is getting smaller every day as like more and more features get added to Checkout. And the like development burden, all of the localization benefits. So Checkout is localized, it's optimized. It's got like all this conversion stuff that happens. And there's new features that are being added to checkout every single day. And so if you just implement Stripe checkout, then there's a really high probability that like your payment flow is going to be rock solid and it's going to be like highly converting and it'll have all the features that you want. And so I always sort of start with checkout. And then after talking through the business use cases, try to figure out why we would build a custom form. And then if there is like a real need for the custom form, then we can go talk about implementing all the different elements and how they're implemented. But yeah, definitely recommend that if they're building a like a billing SaaS today, Stripe Checkout to create the subscription and then the billing portal to manage that. And it should save you tons and tons of code. Yeah, that's sort of the goal is just delete as much code as possible. <laughs> I migrated one of my side projects where I had done all the custom element stuff and I migrated it to the checkout and the billing portal. Lines of code just plummeted. 
And the experience was better for the user, which is the biggest thing to me. It's so much more elegant than any like crap I come up with. I also tried check out on a recent side project where we were using Connect. Mm-hmm. So like our use case was what you would expect it to be. They sell products, physical products, and it funnels through their Stripe account. And where we got tripped up was we weren't actually creating the products in Stripe. Mm-hmm. We just passed through basically like line items mm-hmm. to check out, but we needed dynamic tax rates for shipping. And so that's where I got tripped up. I know you can add your own custom tax rates. Mm -hmm. And my understanding was I would need, if I was handling that for the user, I need to add those tax rates for each customer that connects. Mm -hmm. But then I couldn't get the dynamic part because I wasn't creating products in Stripe as well. So I ended up just passing like tax as a line item and using like a third party API to just calculate tax before. Mm -hmm. But is that something that you think might change with this tax jar acquisition? Ooh, good. That is a good, that is a good question. So I'm coming in, (laughs) I'm coming in hot and pointed. I know, but yeah, as of today, you can either create a checkout session and explicitly pass in a tax rate, right? Like you can say, this customer should pay this tax rate. You can also today pass in like a, an array of tax rates that all might apply based on like certain jurisdictions. And then if the customer enters their uh, shipping or billing address, then we can derive which tax rate in that a list of tax rates applies to that customer. So as you saw, the acquisition of TaxJar, super, super exciting. We're like incredibly happy to have them. And they've long time been like a really great partner to Stripe. And was like often something that we would recommend is consider going and using the Taxjar API to figure out what rates you need to charge and then doing exactly what you did, which was use the Taxjar API to figure out the tax rate and then add a line item that said tax to your checkout flow and then complete your payment. So we know that taxes are a really painful piece of accepting payments and a really painful piece of building a business. And this is something that we're really excited to help solve for entrepreneurs and founders and startups like around the world. And I can say that obviously because of that acquisition, it's something that we're thinking about and something that we're really excited to work on, but I don't have anything specific. To it's all I good. It's good. Yeah. But I know it was a shot in the dark, but I've talked about this problem as podcast before. Yeah. And so I was like, let's go for it. But it is really exciting I see a big future of me using checkout for things. And so I'm excited that there's a lot of effort from Stripe going into it because like you and Chris were talking about, it would be really cool on my side projects to be like, yeah, I don't care how you pay. Whatever is convenient for you. If all it is, is like pass in another string. Cool. Let's go for exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing too, is that's like when we first built checkout, when it was like first launched, we didn't have a lot of features. So you couldn't, for instance, apply a promotion code or some sort of coupon at checkout. Now you can do that. We didn't have a way for someone to adjust the quantity in checkout as they were checking out. And now you can do that. Right now, one of the big questions we get is around donations. So a lot of folks want to accept donations through checkout and the way that we recommend doing that right now is that right before you redirect, you figure out how much they want to donate. And then when they land on the checkout page, they can pay for whatever their donation is. But that's something that we're excited to add also to checkout is like being able to configure the amount that you pay in checkout for that exact case for the donation case. We also have um, some really exciting stuff coming out in the no-code space that's going to help a lot with checkout. 
We are launching a brand new product called Payment Links, which is the ability for you in the Stripe dashboard to create a payment link. And this is basically just creating a template for a checkout session where you can specify all the same stuff that you would for a normal checkout. And then you'll get a, a link in your dashboard that you can share out on social media or send a text message or an email or whatever. And like all of your customers can just click the link and they'll be brought to a checkout page where they can then pay. And this is all like no code. So it's like getting even easier <laughs> to implement this. Furthermore, yeah, we're excited to continue building all the features that we'll build into checkout. We'll eventually make it into this no code product also. So that very, sounds very really exciting. cool. That I guess it eliminates that initial step of generating the checkout session on the server. You're doing it on Stripe and then getting the result there that you can share anywhere, which is super cool. How do those people f- then go fulfill the order there? Yeah, so that is a solid question. No code fulfillment, right? So there's if you go to like our fulfillment docs, we have like a bunch of recommended sort of ways that you can fulfill things that people have paid for or ordered and like the scrappiest way <laughs> when you're like just verifying or validating an idea is just go in your Stripe dashboard and look at the payments and walk through and fulfill each one. One step above that would be to use some like no code tool that receives webhooks like Zapier or like segment.io or something like this, where you can sort of just pipe those events from Stripe directly into some other tool that you can then use to, I don't know, pull from inventory or add to a Google Sheet or print shipping labels with Shippo or I don't know. There's like a, a number of different workflows that I think are available now. It's the no code space is surprisingly like getting a lot of really interesting tools. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. And I also am like curious how folks are going to fulfill and what they'll end up building. But yeah. It makes sense. I can imagine that most people doing some no code thing are used to. We take webhooks from here and we send it to Google Sheets or something and like wire things up or whatever. So it makes sense that they're like, you don't really even have to go build that. You already built all your regular old webhooks. So you can just use those, which is cool. Exactly. That's going to be an exciting feature. I'm really curious to see that because I feel like. There's a couple tools or whatever that people were building for like payments on Jamstack stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the same situation of no code, more or less. Mm-hmm. You might have a little bit, but you still don't have a backend to really deal with a database or any of that yourself. So you end up doing a similar situation there, which is it's definitely an interesting way to approach that problem. Exactly. Yeah. So there's oftentimes I'll get, I'll talk with users who are using some other product to build like a marketing page or they're building like an advertisement or something, or they want to sell stuff through their like Instagram account, or they want to sell it on TikTok or in these places where having a server is like not an option for them. And they're not usually developers. They definitely know their way around like setting up these landing pages and marketing funnels and whatever. But I'm, yeah, I'm really pumped for those users in particular who this will unlock a lot of potential for their businesses online because they can then just say, oh, I'm going to go set up a site with any of these providers, Wix or Google Sites or anything that's available for no code. And then they can just drop a link in and that link results in a payment. So yeah, really exciting time. Do you have any other juicy new announcements that you can share? (laughs) So haven't already seen Stripe Sessions is our big user conference every year. And the signups are now open. So June, I believe it's June 16th. You can go to sessions.stripe.com to sign up and... I mean, if you're excited about any of this stuff, then I would definitely recommend checking out Stripe Sessions where we're going to announce these and other exciting new features and products that Stripe is putting out. 
That's cool. Is this going to be like uh, live streams on the, the website when it's in the Stripe sessions? The format should be really interesting. It's definitely going to be some talk tracks and some video that you can go and watch similar to how you might watch TV. So I think there'll be sort of like different channels that are akin to tracks. And yeah, I think the conference is actually going to run several days. So there's a lot of content that we are that we're really excited to share. And typically in the past sessions has been an in-person event. Last year, it didn't happen. So this year, we're really excited to try out this new format. And we're welcoming yeah everyone to, to come check it out. It sounds awesome. And it says June 16th through 30th. So there's two weeks of content. Yeah, yeah. So it should be exciting. And I think there's going to be some interactive pieces. So it should be really fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to check this out because... I remember seeing Stripe sessions previously when it was like in person, but never had the chance to go. And this will be a great way to do that online. So yeah, I'll have to check that out. Well, CJ, I appreciate you taking the time to hang with us today and let us pick your brain and talk Stripe. Totally. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I have more to talk about here in a couple of weeks when new things get announced and stuff. But yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for all the stuff that you're doing. I mean, the videos and like just all the support that you give. I think it's been one of the things that like since day one, when I tried, there was something in my Stripe dashboard that showed like when my, oh, it was I think when my API token was created and it was like 2008 or something, like some, I don't remember really what year it was, but it was a really old. And I was like, I can't believe I've had a Stripe account for that long, but... <laughs> It was always like the Ruby gems written in a way that feels very Ruby-ish. And I think you guys do an exceptional job of making like everything feel native to the language, which makes it, it goes a long way when you're like, a good example is like the AWS SDK, which is generated and it's nonsense and there's not good documentation or people to help with it, like what you guys have. And it's, it really feels like the API is designed in a way that like, it's more reliable than anything I've ever used. So like it doesn't change that often. And when it does, it's like backwards compatible as best you can. Obviously, the SCA stuff was like a harder thing to, to do, but you know, it's just been a joy to work with. And I think the common tax questions and whatever seem like they're well on their way to getting fixed. So thanks for making all the like Stripe samples and all the videos and everything. It's made it so that I can actually accept payments. In a fraction of the time that it would take me on my own, just reading the docs and fiddling with things. So your work on all that has been hugely helpful. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you too. You've done a ton of work for the community with pay and with Jumpstart. So yeah, absolutely appreciate all the hard work that you've done as well. So. Yeah. And I could have skipped all that if you had to ship Stripe Checkout sooner. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny now looking at Stripe Checkout and I'm like, I could just let Stripe deal with all these problems. So like <laughs> updating your card forms and all that JavaScript is done for you. And any new improvements like coupons also done for you. And yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. Great to hear. Great to hear. Cool. Well, anything else before we go? Do you want to share your Twitter link or YouTube links or anything like that? Yeah, sure. So at CJFDev on Twitter and then uh, CJAvilla on YouTube. I've been trying to make content mostly to help beginner and junior and intermediate web developers get up to speed. So if anyone has any questions about Stripe or getting started or even just like starting their career as web developers, I'd be more than happy to chat. So yeah. Awesome. 
Well, cool. Uh, I guess that wraps it up for this week. We'll talk soon.